My name is Ben Almond. I work for a Fortune 250 company with over 50,000 employees. Using the perspective of this background, combined with my own life experiences and a passion for great leadership, I share observations and ideas for you to use on your development journey. This is The View, from where I sit. Hey everybody, Ben here. Today we've got Louise White joining us on the podcast. She's a global communications leader with Jacobs, has a really interesting story. We met during the integration efforts when Jacobs acquired CH2M Hill and have been friends ever since. As you listen to her story, you might even hear a celebrity sighting or two. We spend our time today talking about personal development and specifically mentorship and reverse mentorship. Louise has some great thoughts on mental health and staying positive during the lockdown as we go through this pandemic, as well as some ideas about how the future of work will affect us all. I think this is timely considering what we're going through with various stay-at-home orders or physical distancing rules, not to mention we could be heading back into another lockdown if things flare up in the fall. I want to be sure you're prepared to look after yourselves and your families as we go through this. So enjoy today. Okay, so excited for everyone to get to know you, Louise. So maybe the best way to get started today is for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you sure. are today. Very glad to be here today, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. So my journey actually started, I guess, a long time ago in terms of my, my work life. So when I was actually um, 13 years old, I was born and raised in a small town in the highlands of Scotland called Inverness. It's, it was around about 50,000 people in the town. It's now one of the fastest growing economically and from a population perspective, actually, in the UK now. So it's something like 75,000 people live there from when I did. But I lived there with my mom and my older sister. And um, my parents split up when I was like 10 years old. So when I was like 13, I was always kind of pretty much aware that, you know, my mom was a single mom and that she worked full time just trying to keep everything together. So back in those days, you were able to actually get what we called like a Saturday job. So I went to work for one of the local greengrocers, so the, the local sort of fruit and vegetable suppliers. And I used to cycle every day, like every Saturday, about three miles from where I lived into the warehouse area of our town. And I used to work like a 10 hour shift in this warehouse, pulling together all of the fruit and vegetable orders for the restaurants and the bars in the Inverness area. And I absolutely loved it. So it was actually, despite the fact that I was standing in this freezing cold warehouse facility, great relationships with the people all around me. It has a a long lasting legacy in that I now could tell you the difference between about 20 different varieties of potatoes should you ever need to know, and about the equal number of apples, etc. So it certainly broadened my knowledge of the fruit and vegetable uh, families. And really, it also just gave me a little bit of independence in terms of, you know, I just had a bit of money in my pocket. It helped take some of the burden off my mom for all the things that a 13-year-old continuously asks for, um, that she really wasn't in a position to be able to provide. And I did that for about three or four years, actually. The owner of the business also had some different stores that sold to the general public as well. So I kind of moved up and started working in the stores, etc. And I spent all of my vacation time kind of working there as well. So my summer vacations and the 
the Christmas holidays, etc. So, you know, I was probably the wealthiest 13 year old that I've ever met at the time. And it was and it just my mum had a very, very, very strong work ethic. And she always really reinforced that with my sister and I about, you know, wanting to make a, a valuable contribution, making sure that you paid your own way in this world. So that's kind of where it really came from. And then before I went to university at the age of 18, I started working. It was a summer role for the local railway company. And it was really working across three or four, what they used to call a summer clerk. So you you were basically covering lots of other people's days off. So I worked in everything from the travel centre, selling railway tickets to I worked in the telephone inquiry. Bureau, because this is obviously the days pre-internet, so people actually had to physically phone up and say, hey, can you tell me what's the time of the next train from Glasgow to London? And I would kind of have a very, very backward computer and have to kind of determine all these different travel plans and tell, tell the callers how to get where they needed to go. But then the most interesting part of that job was that there was a scenic railway from Inverness to a beautiful place called Kyle of Lochalsh. And for those people that know anything about Scotland, they'll know that there's a very uh, historically significant place in Scotland called the Isle of Skye, where uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie, again, for those of you that know any history of Scotland, was um, kind of came back from exile in France through the Isle of Skye. And anyway, almost three hour train trip. And it has an observation car, which is a special uh, railway carriage that's all glazed so that you get sort of full visibility all the way around. And I was the courier in that in that railway carriage where for the best part of three hours, I stood in the middle of the carriage. I had a microphone and I would tell people all about all the different the history and the different stories and all the fables around uh, the history that we would travel through. And it was, again, fascinating job. It only took about 36 people in this railway carriage. I got to meet some amazing people that had travelled from all over the world just to see this beautiful scenic countryside. It was just a great experience and it gave me a lot of confidence to be able to, you know, to deal with groups of people, to be able to speak publicly, etc. So really enjoyed that. And I actually did that for the four summers that I was at university. So every every year I would come back home, stay the summer with my mom and do this job for four years straight, which was just such a great experience. So to go to the university piece, I left school to go to study journalism in Edinburgh. I lasted all of five weeks and then I turned up back home one night, one Friday night, I've never forgotten it, with my bags packed and stood on the doorstep, I rang the doorbell, my mum opened the door and I said, that's me, I'm done. And uh, she was like, huh, interesting, okay, in you come. So came in, sat down with her, said, you know, I hate the course. I hate I was living in this uh, apartment with a bunch of you know people I'd never met before, was kind of struggling to adjust to that. I think it was all of like 17 years old. I'd never lived away from home before. There was no student accommodation. So I was you know, living with a bunch of kind of folks that I'd never met. And I think just all of it was just way too much. So it was the first time in my life, I suppose, it was a bit of a defining moment where I really stood my ground and my mum tried to persuade me to go back and said, you know, you're just homesick, you'll be fine. And I just said, no, I know this isn't the right thing for me. I know this isn't what I want to do. So she said, well, you know what, that's fine. But, you know, you're going to have to pay your way. You're going to have to get up on Monday morning. You're going to have to go down to the job centre. You're going to have to find yourself a job. 
And this is what your life's going to be now, Louise. So that's what I did. And I got myself a job uh, working in a local leisure centre. And several months later, unbeknownst to me, she reapplied for me to go back to university to do a slightly different course. I got accepted again, unbeknownst to me. And then when it came round to the summertime again, by that point, I was so fed up with the job and I decided that, oh, gosh, I need to get out of here. I need to I need to think about going back to university. I was kicking myself that I hadn't applied. And my mum had you know, pulled a rabbit out of the hat and said, well, actually, I applied on your behalf and you've got a place. So if you really want to do this, you need to be certain, you need to be sure and just give it another go. And she always believed that everyone deserved a second chance in this life. So I did that and I went back to Glasgow this time. I did an honours degree in communication and mass media for four years, which I loved every minute of. I was very fortunate when I finished university, I'd kind of really got my act together and I sent out something like 300 resumes about two months before we were due to finish university. And I got offered several internships and I actually got and I couldn't afford to do an internship. That was the thing I always remembered was that I had no way of funding myself if I did an internship that was unpaid, as a lot of them were in those days, especially in the media. So I was really lucky that I got a job working for one of the big international public relations companies uh, based in Edinburgh. And I was it was a graduate entry level. So they kind of taught me the whole kind of tools of the trade so to speak and I uh, worked there for three years really across a whole broad range of business to business and consumer accounts everything from relaunching linoleum flooring back into the UK market that was not an easy one to sell let me tell you to working for the Scottish Tourist Board to working for the Drambuie liqueur company a whole range of really fascinating interesting public relations campaigns and I think that's really where I got my love for for PR in particular. I then left there and went to what was Richard Branson's media company, Virgin Media. I worked there for a year as their in-house PR and marketing person. And then from there, I came to a company called Babti. And Babti was ultimately acquired by Jacobs back in 2004. And I started out there as their public relations officer and then I gradually just kind of worked my way up progressively over the years and then when we were acquired by Jacobs I was very fortunate that that actually opened up some additional opportunities now in the role of vice president of marketing communications and brand for the people in places solutions business that role really came around when our current COO, Bob Pragada, took up his head of line of business role. I had reached out to Bob and offered just if there was anything I could do to help him in his new role. And he called me up and he said, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. I told him who I was and what I did. He asked me to come and meet him when he was in the UK. So I did that. We really hit it off, had a great conversation. And he asked if I would consider broadening my role, which at that time was just for the UK and Europe, and consider doing it from a global perspective. So I certainly wasn't going to turn down that opportunity. And anybody that knows Bob will also know that, you know, really one of the best people you can possibly work for. So I have had 
a really amazing experience over the last four, four and a half years working in partnership with him and some of the other senior leaders within our business. Wow, Louise, wow. what a journey, right? I would think that from a communication standpoint, you probably learned a lot on that train. Oh, like huge amount. I mean, just because the exposure to so many different nationalities, I never forgot meeting oh, just the most charming American, you know, retired couple that were that were visiting Scotland from um, from the US, eh, from Florida in the US. And I was a really big golf fan, like huge golf fan. And my my favourite golfer back in those days was uh, Fred Couples, still still is to this day. And at the time, he was the US Masters champion, etc. And I remember talking to them and they knew Fred Couples. And, and I remember just being blown away by this. And I didn't know anybody from the US back in those days. And, you know, typically friendly Americans gave me their card with their home address and their phone number and said, if you ever make it to the US, you come and look us up and you're welcome to stay with us. And, you know, Americans just being a much more culturally open kind of, I suppose, nationality than people in the UK who have a tendency to be a little more guarded. And I remember going home to my mom and saying, you're never going to believe this. I met a couple today, <laughs> Fred couples. And that that was just an example of just the whole diversity of the different the different types of people that just fascinated me that you would get to meet. There was a lot of Japanese people that took that particular trip as well. And it just it just fascinated me, that whole mix of people. And I just loved conversing with all those different folks. So definitely did, Ben. It definitely kind of set me down the pathway, I suppose, to wanting to actively communicate as part of my career. Well, and I can imagine the learning curve as you got into that first PR firm and you worked with very different clients with very different objectives allowed you to to use those skills of looking through a different lens because clearly, you know, working for a liquor company with different objectives than, you know, the tourism board for example forces you into a space where you have to almost attempt to understand where both the client is coming from, but also the consumer or, or their client is coming from. And, and that's probably served you well over the years since joining Bapti and subsequently in the Jacobs world. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing, I mean, like for so many of folks in our own business, at Jacobs is that you're, you're obviously you're representing, you're working on multiple projects often at the same time. And every Every client is as important as every other client, right? So just really learning how to juggle those different priorities and making sure that you never had a client that felt like they were being undervalued or under um, represented and just having to make everyone feel like they were the most special person because they didn't care who else was in your portfolio that you were trying to manage at the same time. So it really helped sharpen I suppose, skills around just prioritization, time management, which, you know, when you're 21 years old, as I was when I started in that job, um, you know, are not typically things that you may be especially astute about. But it, as you say, it was a very steep learning curve. I think that's what kept it really interesting was the fact that there was such a broad range and variety of work and, you know, some some accounts of which obviously I liked more than others. But that was always the great thing about it, because you also had to go out and pitch for business. So you would be part of a pitch team that would have to go in and present to, um, to you know, to new business clients. And again, that was just a great discipline to learn about how to 
succinctly condense your messaging and and sell fundamentally as well. So yeah, those were it was just the best grounding I could have got to the start of my career. That's interesting because you know we pride ourselves in you know the best sales being starting for us anyway, starting with people doing great work and interacting with their clients in a positive way. And that, using air quotes here, seller-doer attitude. So you had that ingrained in you from the time you were you were early in your career with that PR firm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I actually came into Babti, so many of our folks, I mean, the, 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 the structure of Babti was unlike, you know, Jacob's is at the moment, where we have a kind of dedicated, you know, sales professional team. Babti didn't have a sales uh, team to really speak of. In fact, the marketing person was pretty much two or three of us and in its entirety for a business that had about 4,000 people. The sales folks were seller doers, as you say. So it was people who were both delivering the projects and then always having to have their eye on the future pipeline at the same time. So they were multitasking between selling and actually you know, delivering at the same time. So I think that mindset to me didn't seem unusual because I'd come at it from the same the same discipline in the PR company. I assume some very valuable learnings there around having the message focused on the true objective and what you were hoping the observer to to pick up on what you were putting out there that you know many of us as leaders need to learn from, right? You act, Louise, as a coach to to many of us because, you know, as a leader in today's times, communication is what sort of defines the vision and the impression that people have of us as leaders, right? So you communicate and you act in accordance and tied to the things that you say you're going to do. I guess along the way, did you observe anybody or learn from anybody that really made that lasting impact? And maybe as a sidebar, did you ever get to meet Richard Branson? (laughs) sadly sadly no I did not but I can tell you who I did get to meet so I did get to meet Sean Connery for those of you who can remember Sean Connery (laughs) um, who is now who is now retired but back in those days Sean was really at the top of his game because this is actually now going back like 25 years Drambui were the sponsors of a film festival in Scotland at the time, it attracted a lot of international movie stars, etc. But because Sean Connery was from originally from Edinburgh, he would come to support this particular film festival. And he actually had a movie out that year that they were showcasing. He did he did come the year that I was there and it was Sean Connery and I had to babysit Steve Martin, the American actor and comedian. And I, I was in awe of Steve Martin, I have to say, probably more so than I even was of Sean Connery at the time. So, And I remember thinking um, very naively, wow, this, this PR gig's amazing. You know, you just get to float around and meet lots of really famous people because that all happened within like my first four, four to six weeks of working there. And uh, I kind of thought that the you know, the remainder of the year was going to follow soup, which incidentally it did not. That was like the a culmination, if you like, of what my colleagues had been working on for the previous 12 months. I just happened, it was just happy timing that I came in at the point where it all came together at the same time. And it was the glam piece of it that I got to see, not all the, the hard work that they had put in previous to that. But those were two kind of standout moments for me. But in terms of, um, I suppose, people that influenced me, I mean, it, that job in particular, the PR company job, did have a really 
robust graduate programme. And that's why when I see the commitment that our company gives to our graduates in terms of really investing in their career development, you know, I can really understand what the, you know, the outcomes are around that and just really having such a strong structure of of mentors, because I, I really benefited massively from the mentorship of the folks that I worked with in, in that first job out of university. Because I will say I knew absolutely nothing when I came out of university. I remember, you know, having spent four years studying this stuff. And I remember turning up and being in one of my first meetings within the first couple of weeks and just thinking everyone was talking double Dutch and being pretty overwhelmed and kind of intimidated by the fact that thinking, how am I ever going to understand what these people are talking about? And then just, you know, thanks to folks really investing some time in me within probably three months being you know, able to contribute, hopefully meaningfully at those kind of meetings so how things could just turn around if people actually do take the time out to really help you along the way and I think also just seeing that people have got potential is something I've always certainly tried to do as well in my career if there's somebody that I can see really has got all the makings of really you know being a great contributor then really just trying to do whatever I can to kind of help them along their journey I guess. Yeah, I love that. I, we could really actually probably end the podcast with the fact that you met 007. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell you actually what it was like meeting 007 because it will disappoint you massively. <laughs> well, they do say, right, never meet your heroes because you'll be exactly. disappointed. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's indeed very true. I do love that concept, Louise, where, you know, you're sort of always learning and always teaching at the same time. And and I think, you know, we talk about it a lot as we have conversations on the podcast about there's opportunities at every point in your career to be leading and providing input and impacting, even if you're not sitting in a position of power on an organization chart, right? And helping educate and continue to provide valuable lessons based on your own experiences, which, you know, as you know very well, depending on where you are in your career, you've got a very different lens, but that also adds value because sometimes we get locked away in our echo chambers of people who have experienced the same things as us along the way. And then being willing to take the time as you continue to grow to make sure that you're helping others along. That's so important. If we want to create a sustainable organization and sustainable growth for the individuals that that are within it that's got to be just culturally embedded yeah absolutely and i think you have to really open be really open to to learning from people at every level in the organization i mean i think one of the smartest things our business has ever done is introduce the executive intern program because I will say hand on heart, I have probably learned more or equally as much from our executive interns that I've had the privilege of working with over the last three or four years than I have from any other group in my career. And I've been around a lot of really fantastic, smart people. But I really have been around the exec interns. They are just on a, an incredible plane all of their own making and to really see just how 
just really how super progressive these young men and women are is is just been incredible. And as I say, I've been very lucky to to actually work with so many of them across a few different projects that I'm involved in and have been involved with in the past. And I mean, I've always, always wanted to learn from who I've worked for. So I've always wanted, not surprisingly, I guess, for anyone to work for somebody who not only do I respect, uh, but also somebody that I know that I can continue to gain, you know, further experience from. And again, I've been, you know, I've had two significant mentors or I've had many mentors actually through the years, not all women mentors necessarily. But the two mentors that I've had that have really stood out actually over the last few years has been Bob Pregada. To watch Bob in situations and how he carries himself, how he conducts himself, how he deals with some very high pressured situations has really been a masterclass in some cases of just how to, you know, how to thrive in certain situations. And then the other one really has been Marietta Hannigan, who I'm really blessed to work with day in, day out. And Marietta's work ethic. And it really takes me back to what I was saying about my mom, just really trying to make sure that you're constantly bringing value to the table in whatever you do in life, whether it's work, whether it's with your friends, whether it's with your family, etc. And Marietta's, you know, the value that Marietta brings to the organisation as, you know, as one person is just incredible. So I think having been working, you know, alongside both of those folks has really pushed me further forward. And I've been very lucky that they've been very generous with their time over the years as well, which has, you know, helped me develop, I think, a great deal. I was lucky enough early on, Louise, that two of the very first people I met as I joined Jacobs through an acquisition as well, right, were Bob and Marietta. And that helped me get a better sense of the organization that I was joining and what the heart of it was going to feel like. And, you know, they were both in different roles than they're in today. And and it's been exciting to watch them grow. But I want to go back to something you said Mm -hmm. at the or a little earlier on around, you know, I've been lucky enough to also learn from folks all around me. and, And there is a bit of a mentality that goes into being able to take in you know, experiences happening around you, information from people at all levels of the organization and and take those and synthesize that into something that helps affect the way you behave and act going forward. And it takes a special kind of person to be open enough to do that from all angles. And we've got a pretty unique opportunity now, you know, both in business and in our personal lives to learn as we go through an experience that quite possibly no other generation has got to deal with, with the pandemic and, you know, an entirely different social construct than we've had in our lifetimes anyway. And I know you and I have talked a little bit about what we can learn from this, you know, whether it's personally or, or professionally, and I thought it might be worthwhile to dive a little bit into, you know, what has your experience been like as we've gone through the drastic shift from global travel and interacting in close proximity, face-to-face, nonstop, to all of a sudden, we're home? Sure. No, that's a really, really great question, Ben. The way that I have certainly tried to approach this, given you know the challenges that everyone has had to face here, is really try to seek out, if you like, the silver linings to be put under such rigorous lockdown conditions. 
So just to give a bit of further background, I guess, into my life. So I'm married to my husband, Matthew, and I have two you know, relatively young children. I have a five-year-old son, Ethan, and I have a seven-year-old daughter, Georgia. And when I took the job with Bob that I was referring to earlier, my son was only about a year old at the time and my daughter was only three. So it was definitely challenging and the job required and still does up until the point of the pandemic, a great deal of international travel, which again was incredibly exciting really grateful for that opportunity to really cast my net across the four corners of the globe, quite literally with Jacobs. But it certainly came alongside trying to balance off a domestic, you know, family life against, you know, a work life. And it isn't a balance that I've always struck, especially successfully, which I'm sure my husband would agree with, but one that I have continuously, you know, fought that battle nonetheless to kind of get it more fine-tuned, I suppose. And really what the pandemic did was immediately, um, you know, our company, as things were starting to ramp up, put on a travel ban. And initially it was for a couple of months and it's now been extended out. So just even knowing that for a couple of months solid, I was not going to be traveling because my usual cadence would be one trip to Dallas every month, bare minimum, and usually another trip somewhere else in the States, probably in between. So I was probably traveling every couple of weeks on average. And that took me away from home for probably five, maybe sometimes six nights every couple of weeks. And that was difficult, just juggling as, as many, many parents do, mothers and fathers, you know, the logistics of you know two kids at school, all the stuff that goes alongside that, running a household, all that kind of shebang. So it was it was actually um, and I've always loved traveling. I've always loved being away. The kids have always adapted really well to it. There's never been a huge amount of issues. But the minute I heard that I wasn't going anywhere for two months, I felt this weight being lifted off my shoulders. And I remember very distinctly thinking, wow, I'm going to be sleeping in my own bed for two months straight. I'm not going to have to think about, okay, how am I going to get them from school to after school club to back home when I'm not here? How's where's my husband going to be? Because he also works away for periods of time. He works for a Taiwanese company. I think all of that, just the fact that it simplified straight off the bat, that situation was a real plus point. And there was lots of other plus points. I mean, just being around every single day and admittedly, you know, all living within the one household 24-7 after a while became a little tiresome in places. But for the most part, just really trying to take advantage of the fact that we were all together in this lockdown. I have to say it has been, for the most part, nothing but a positive um, experience. We have tried to use that time as best we can to, you know, kind of create some sort of legacy, if you like. So my husband is the type of individual who always likes to have a project on the go. So very early on, I think we were about a week into the lockdown, he suggested that he build a playhouse for the children in the backyard and brought me the design and it turned into what we call in the UK a glamping pod so it was a big kind of six and a half meter by three and a half meter kind of wooden kind of almost like a cabin structure in the backyard and said you know we can all get involved in doing this together so we all really got the kids really involved they helped with some of the designing of it and we gave them little jobs during the construction so we basically just bought a wooden frame that came as a kit 
had to build the whole frame out, you know, and really do the whole thing from start to finish um, ourselves. And my husband's a mechanical and electrical engineer to trade, so he managed to do all the electrics. So it's now a fully functional, large playroom for the kids that has, you know, all the facilities in it. We kind of joke that it's the house that COVID built. And I'd also I'd lost my mum the, the year before she had passed away and um, she'd always wanted the kids to have something to kind of remember her by. So we were just about to put a sort of plaque up and we're calling it, you know, Grandma's Pod um, so that the kids will always because they were young when she's obviously passed. And we just kind of want to make sure that there's a legacy, that there's something to remind, you know, the kids of, of my mum as they grow older. So we're kind of, you know, really pleased that we've kind of got something really productive to look back on this time and, and to to say that, well, not everything bad came out of the pandemic lockdown for us. So that's probably personally how I've tried to to look at it. And also, I think professionally, I mean, I've just been staggered by how responsive um, not just my own team, but the business as a whole for you know being part of a 52,000 person company. The fact that we were able to respond to this and have, you know, 85, 90 percent of our organisation stood up for remote working within a matter of days, I think was nothing short of miraculous. And I think most of us would agree that there has been little, if no, disruption to our ability to work remotely. And probably nobody was more surprised than that than me, because I was never a fan of remote working before. I never chose to work in the house. I always liked to be in an office environment. I always liked to be, you know, dressed for an office environment. I always liked to be very much in a professional surroundings and I'm never a fan of, you know, sitting at home and working. So I I thought I would really struggle with this. And actually it's been quite the reverse. It's been a real eye opener. And I think we've seen through all of the different surveys that not just our own organisation, but lots of other companies have done as well, is that there's a real there's a real movement now to to be introducing further flexibility into people's ways of working and not for us all just to return back to the old ways of having to be tied to, you know, a desk in an office, but to really give folks some better options around how they balance their working life. So I think this has acted as a real accelerator um, for all of this. And again, I think that's been a, a major silver lining to be able to push our approach and our mindset forward quite dramatically, I would say. COVID seems to have shown us through crisis what was possible. As you said, I know we weren't alone, but we were quickly able to transition to everybody working in a distributed fashion, which you know, speaks to the the work that we do, but probably speaks more to the individuals that we get a chance to work with and their willingness to to lean in and make it work, even if, you know, you're sitting at your kitchen table in your apartment rather than in your fully equipped desk at work with multiple monitors and, and all of those things. And I think, you know, to your point, Louise, on what it's done personally for you I think that as we come out of this, I hope we find this place where it empowers people in their personal lives to be a little bit more engaged and and present. And then in the big picture becomes better for everyone because people 
are feeling a lot more comfortable, you know, showing more of themselves in the work that they do and allowing their personality out a bit more because they feel comfortable enough that, you know, their kid could walk into the room while they're on a conference call and not be embarrassed by that. Or, um, you know, their dog could be making noise in the background and that's not as disruptive as they thought it might be. Uh, but at the same time, they feel like they can let their personality out in the workplace a bit more. And I think we've all been learning from this. I, I certainly share that experience that you had in the beginning. I have not for over a decade spent a night without a suitcase at the end of my bed, either packed to go on my next trip <laughs> or just unpacked so I could do laundry. And yep. this is the first time in at least that long that I haven't been either just returning or preparing or both for for another trip. And it's been a little bit refreshing, although there is some anxiety because it feels so abnormal. But I'm excited to see what this does for us. I yeah. will admit to anyone listening that I've seen pictures of the glamping pod. And <laughs> I mean, Louise, if that's a tribute to your mom, that's spectacular because it is so impressive. It's hard to believe that that wasn't professionally done. Yeah, my husband's very proud. Thank you for that, Ben. My husband's extremely proud of that achievement. He is at the moment trying to showboat that and claim that that victory is entirely his own. However, I like to think of it as a team a team sport and that it was, you know, even even if the kids only hammered in a few nails here and there, it was it was definitely a family um project and um there was a lot of good learning and teaching points um throughout it as well because my my five-year-old son is just such a typical you know outdoorsy kind of kid and and he was really interested in understanding you know elements of how you know you bring a build like that together so I just think it was a just a really great thing to kind of you know include the kids in and, um, and also feel like they've contributed to something my hope is that they might treat it a bit more respectfully as well if they if they um, feel like they have a vested um, interest in it as well. And I think just to pick up on one of your points as well, Ben, I think it's, I was reading an article the other day there just really talking about how do we move from surviving to thriving? And I think, again, this has opened our eyes to lots of ways in which people feel like maybe they have some more control over their life. If there is, you know, more opportunities for people to have some flexibility, both where they work and how they work. Um, and it's certainly something that our companies, you know, having a, a very comprehensive dig into at the moment um, is really just to determine and really listen to what our people want, but also what our clients need moving forward and really just trying to determine how do we set people up for success so that they are thriving in the new normal, whatever that appears to be over the coming months as we start to hopefully move away from the pandemic conditions and try and figure out, you know, what our lives look like in the future. The world is definitely going to change, right? Yeah. And I'm really curious to see how we take the best things that we're learning through this pandemic as a result of all of us going into crisis mode. And, and I, I say that in, you know, like the entire world reacted to what clearly presented itself as a crisis. And there are certainly some challenges out there that people that aren't as lucky as us that can work remotely are going to have to deal with. And hopefully, you know, we all get back up on our feet as quickly as possible. 
And my hope is that as we learn our lessons to what sustainability looks like going through this, that, you know, maybe our future gets even more stable and predictable because we're a little smarter about how we set ourselves up as a society for success in the long run, you know? Absolutely. That would be the major silver lining, I think, that would run through all of this. As I say, out of every bad situation has got to come some good. That's the kind of doctrine that I've always tried to believe as I've kind of worked my way through, you know, my journey. And I think this situation is no different. But I mean, don't get me wrong, if I, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people, as we know, that have lost loved ones uh, during this time. And, you know, their perspective will be very different for those of us who have really just had to live with the disruption around this. But for those who have really been at the, the hard side of this, where they've actually had some very significant personal losses. I know that's a very different perspective that they will have. But I think for the most part, there has to be some good that can come from this. I do think it would be a shame if we let something like this happen with all of the tragedy that ties to it. And we don't use it as a platform to elevate into the future. And and that could be as simple as the fact that you get more family time and that allows you to be better when you're focusing on work and doing the things you do for work. Or it could be, you know, major changes to government approaches to dealing with crisis or, you know, corporate approaches to workplaces and all of those things that contribute as well. So, you know, I, I feel really lucky that the biggest hardship for me has been trying to figure out how I find a quiet place to work at home and dealing with not getting a haircut but I haven't lost a family member or been touched in that really terrible way by the virus that many others have. But still, I feel really passionate about how we can use this to create you know, a positive outcome. And, and I hope that folks that have had a harder time going through this you know, would see that as a terrible waste if we went through all of this and we didn't learn from it. So I'm really glad to see you know, people that I know and respect doing that look in the mirror and saying, you know, what what have I learned through this and what good has come from this and how do we pivot through this into into something that's even more positive for, you know, our team and, and our communities? Yeah, 100 percent agree, Ben. I think that's I think we actually owe it to all the folks that have been so adversely impacted to try and see if there isn't a greater good that can come out of this situation. Well, I think, Louise, with people like you out in the in the forefront, I think there's no choice but for it to turn out great. Well, thank you, Ben. I hope I hope we can all make our own little contributions to kind of push the dial further to the right and just keep things progressing in the right direction. I absolutely agree. Thanks for coming on, Louise. Thanks so much for, for giving me the opportunity to participate. Thanks for listening again today, everybody. I hope you enjoyed what really was a fun conversation. We all have a lot going on these days with challenges of being semi-isolated or behind a computer screen all day. I can't imagine what parents are dealing with combining the stresses of parenting with concerns about school or after-school care or raising a family in the strangest of times. On top of all that, our work groups are taking on the challenges of our business in an entirely different way while still under the pressures of our clients and ourselves to deliver on the same deadlines. And I'll leave you with a suggestion today. Consider what you're doing for yourself. Louise and her family have come up with some ways they've looked after themselves and each other as they take the pandemic head on. 
What can you do to give your brain some space, to regain some of your positivity? Think about the things that make you happy. Maybe take a bit of time each day focused on yourself and your family. I think you'll feel a little bit better every day that you do this. This is the view from where I sit.